You're listening to audio from Covenant Church. Visit covenantdoylestown.org to connect with our ministry. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. And as I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking about fairy tales, right? Fairy tales, fairy tales. Don't we all love a good fairy tale? It starts with that once upon a time, and it ends with... Oh, we're not really awake yet. Let's try that again. It ends with happily... There we go. So... Fairy tales, they usually have like the princess and the prince. There's usually something evil, like you know, witch or something involved. But in the end, love wins and they conquer it. One of the fairy tales that I like is called Little Mermaid. Maybe you've heard of it. Here we have the little mermaid, the little princess mermaid in the water who falls in love with a human prince. And what does she do? She goes to an evil sea witch to exchange uh, her voice for legs, and she goes up to the surface, and she begins trying to connect with the prince. Well, of course, you know, one thing happens, another thing, it almost falls apart, but in the end, we have the wonderful moment, right, where the evil witch is defeated, and we have them living happily ever after. Now, that's a good Disney one. (laughs) But I don't know if you know Hans Christian Andersen, but he was the one who actually wrote The Little Mermaid way back when. And his version is a little bit different. One little difference is that when the sea witch does make uh, The Little Mermaid's legs, she actually cursed her and said, every time you take a step, you're going to feel like you're walking on glass or like knives. It's going to shoot pain up your legs. I guess that didn't bother her, so she did it. But then the ending is a little bit different. In the end of this story, the prince actually ends up marrying another woman, and the Little Mermaid is basically going to be doomed to be the foam of the sea, but her sisters come up to the surface, and they have cut their hair, sold it to the witch, and the witch gives them a knife, and they share the instructions are, use the knife to kill the prince, and when his blood spatters on your legs, you'll turn back into a mermaid, and you can go back in the sea. Oh, it gets better. So she does go up there, and she has the knife. She's ready to do it, but she looks at her prince. She can't do it. So she throws the knife, and she falls into the sea and becomes the foam of the sea. Happily ever after, isn't it? (laughs) But doesn't that version, the non-Disney-esque version, right, makes us a little more uncomfortable, right? And that seems to be the theme, right? We're going through the book of Jonah, the uncomfortable book, and guess what? We're coming to the last chapter, and it stays true. It's going to be just as uncomfortable here at the end. There is no real living happily ever after here. We're going to be looking at the last chapter, and we're going to see the uncomfortable emotion, an uncomfortable engagement, and an uncomfortable ending. An uncomfortable emotion, engagement, and ending. Now, if you were with us from the beginning in chapter one, I got the chance to be the one to introduce. I'm the bookends here. But we looked at the uncomfortable plan that God had, his, the people that were uncomfortable, and the provision. Chapter two, we looked at the time when Jonah was repenting, but even that was a bit uncomfortable because you could almost say that his prayer was a little bit more like, hmm, thanks God for getting me out of that. I owe you one, right? That was kind of the prayer. The third chapter, he does eventually go to where he's supposed to go, and it seems like, you know, okay, he's obeying, but it's more like an uncomfortable compliance, maybe, begrudgingly. He gets through it, though, 
And chapter 3 ends with this kind of musical moment, right? This, this moment where we see the people have repented, we see change. In spite of the prophet, God is doing a good work. That could have been the nice bow on top of the package, right? That could have been it. But then they decided to write chapter 4. So we get to now the point of the story where after Jonah has done his job and he's coming back out of the city, and here is how we end. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord Yahweh and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore... O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Dramatic pause here. (laughs) Just take note. Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and it made it come over Jonah that it should be fried shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Wait a minute, deja vu there. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Uncomfortable ending. Well, we're not going to go right there. But first, we're going to start with that uncomfortable emotion. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it. It was very subtle. But here was an emotion that Jonah had there. A bit of anger, right? He was angry. And that just right there alone often makes us uncomfortable. Anger is an uncomfortable emotion. It may be that you see people, you know, get angry in public, and you start getting uncomfortable if that happens. It may be that someone gets angry at you, and you may even not know why, and so that makes us uncomfortable. You may be uncomfortable even when it happens, when you get angry, and you feel you can't control that energy, that emotion. You feel like you're going to explode, and even you could even get that uncomfortable feeling when a person who has a good passion is speaking, maybe, and they're starting to get angry. Anger creates in us a bit of uncomfort, discomfort. So I thought we'd explore this. What is anger? Well, there is this book out. It's called Good and Angry, and it's by Dave Pallison, who, is a Christian, who was a Christian counselor. And he, I took bits and pieces from this book to create this definition of anger. It goes like this. What is anger? 
It's the way we react when something we think is important is not the way it's supposed to be. Human beings come wired with the capacity to react with displeasure towards real wrongs and to act forcefully to make wrongs right. In other words, we are moral beings, we are made in the image of God, so we are wired to operate in anger's logic. That matters, and it's wrong. It displeases me, and I'm against it. I should change it, remove it, destroy it. The core is that something important is not the way it's meant to be, and we are moved to take action. Anger is about displeasure, and anger is passion. So, if, you, if nothing mattered to you in life, then pretty much you can guarantee you won't get angry in life. Because in the essence of anger, it's a passion. It's a desire, an emotion, that you see something wrong and you want to make it right. Now, the question is, what is the wrong? And how is it being affecting to make it right? And how is it true or not true? That's the trick behind it all. And so we're going to take a look at two different kinds of anger for a moment. But before we do, I just want to say this. I don't think Christians get angry enough, often enough, right? Get angry enough, often enough. Now, you may hear that statement and be a little uncomfortable. Aren't Christians supposed to be nice? What do you mean we're not getting angry enough? But let's back up. You may even be thinking, wait, isn't anger pretty much a sin? Like, if we get angry, we're ultimately just sinning. Well, in Ephesians it says this, in your anger do not sin. Anger itself is just an emotion, right? It's that passion, it's a drive. And in your anger though, do not sin. So clearly anger can easily and quickly lead us to sin. And so we're gonna take a look at the two different kinds of anger and think about how do they easily and quickly lead to sin. One, in its essence, is more of that righteous anger. It is that anger where believers should have that feeling that something is not right. We have a passion, of the passion of God even filling us up. We see injustice happening. We have a drive to make what is wrong right. And it doesn't even have to be the external things, right? The, the injustices of the world, poverty or racism or things out there. But it also can be things about us where if we are harmed, in some way, or we're grieving. There is definitely room there for that righteous anger. Even Jesus got angry. And he got angry when there was his temple was being misused and people were not being treated well. But in your anger, do not sin. So how can good anger, righteous anger, go bad? Well, I thought of three different questions to ask in this kind of moment. Have you ever misinterpreted God's anger or his definition of justice? Have you ever misinterpreted that? Because that's what I see as Jonah. Jonah probably started out a little bit with that righteous anger because we saw even from the very beginning that he wanted justice. He was a man of justice, but he could not see past this. He saw only that the Ninevites deserved some kind of quick, swift annihilation, if you will, something because they were wicked, they were cruel. He did not, though, stop to consider God's mercy involved with that justice. And in fact, in the end, we see that he even disagreed with it. He could quote to God who he was, but didn't really think of it as important. But the other two questions are these. Have you turned your righteous 
good anger into a weapon? Do we see a way that we sometimes use our good anger for something that we see wrong and direct it then towards the, perhaps, the, the attackers of the, the, the party, the ones who are deserving, perhaps, and your anger then turns into hatred, and you're ready to attack with your anger? Or even more broadly, we turn it into something like party A is angry with, does something wrong to party B, but, and since party A here is involved in some other group, our anger is then put out there as for everything, and we get angry about the whole group of people, and our anger then turns into hatred and murderous kinds of thoughts, right? We get that anger happening. So our good anger can easily and quickly turn bad. And just like Jonah, we can easily and quickly forget that we are not God. Jonah believed that God was supposed to take quick action. He was supposed to get rid of these people. That's the kind of justice he thought of. But even then, that sense of mercy that he forgot, he even told God, you are a God slow to anger. But then he acted completely opposite. He was quick to anger. In James, it's a New Testament book that's kind of the book of wisdom in the New Testament. It says this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. The God of compassion is a God who is slow to anger. And as those who follow him, how should we then reflect in Christ that same compassion and slow to anger? What would it look like to have that passion of anger, but execute it in a slow manner that would actually bring about the good change that God desires? So that is the first anger. The second anger, on the other hand, is the one that we often fall into, right? We ought to, as Christians, find more that angers us in the world that we want to see made right. But often anger falls into the second category, which is the anger of our own injustice. We feel wrong has been done to us, or our lives is not going the right way, and so we get angry about it. Why? Because we have idols in our heart idols in our heart. Paul Tripp puts it this way, a good thing becomes a bad thing when the good thing becomes the ruling thing. The good thing becomes a bad thing when the good thing becomes the ruling thing. So what do I mean by that? In James chapter 4, it says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. When the idols of our hearts are being challenged, our first reaction is to get angry, is that defensive mode. What do I mean? Well, just picture this. You've worked a long day and you're extremely tired. So you come home, you're ready just to grab a certain beverage from the fridge, sit on the couch, relax, unwind, take a breath. But what happens? The kids need their homework, your spouse needs you to help around the house, the dishes, the dog, the garbage, everything starts happening. And what happens? You get angry because you don't get that one idol, that momentary idol that you have been craving, which is that peace or that comfort. Now is peace and comfort wrong? No, they're good things, but the good thing became a bad thing when the good thing became that ruling thing, the thing you wanted more than anything else, more than even your children or your spouse, right? 
And it can come out in other ways, too. We see it come out in different things, from like perhaps your child, when you are trying to discipline, they're, they're not obeying, or they're being you know, rude to you, and you get angry because they're not being that, that idol. They're not filling your idol of either a good reputation as a parent or maybe a perfect child. That is disturbing and disrupting your idol, and so you get angry. So many things get us angry, and when we stop to think, what is it that's in our hearts? What is the idol of our heart that is being challenged? We can stop and think, what do I need to repent of? So while Jonah may have had that moment of injustice, that good anger happening, he quickly turned it into this other where his idol was being challenged. And what was that idol? Well, it was actually his own image of what he thought God should be. He thought he had a God that was going to bring him comfort and make his life perfect and get rid of all those other evil people. He was angry at God for not being the God he thought he should be. Jonah was making God into his image and getting angry when that version of God was not the real God. Uncomfortable emotion, right? Now that uncomfortable emotion leads us to uncomfortable engagement meaning that interaction that we see happening between God and Jonah. There's some discomfort here. Why? Why is it uncomfortable? Well, remember back in Jonah chapter 1, what does Jonah do? He doesn't engage with God at all. He basically is told to do something, and he turns around and does the other thing, and he never actually talks to God at all. He simply runs. Now we're at the end, and here we have a little bit of an engagement where he's sharing some truth. He's sharing his motivation for why he actually ran away. And perhaps, but his honesty and his anger is kind of becoming now even accusatory, right? He's using God's own character almost as an accusation against God. And then what does he do? Well, he kind of throws that out to God. God asks him a question, and what happens? Nothing. He, he just ignores God again. He disengages. In fact, he goes up onto a hill. He doesn't answer. He probably knows the answer, and he just ignores God and sits there, actually maybe with his fingers crossed, hoping that God may actually do what he was hoping, which is destroy the city. So he's maybe there sitting with his popcorn, ready to see something happen. But God doesn't let that go, right? He goes on, like a good parent, if strategy one doesn't work, we move on to strategy B. So he engages Jonah again a bit uncomfortably. He uses his circumstances and his environment to push Jonah to the point of revealing his heart and revealing his, his idol, revealing his pride. He appoints a plant. Okay, that's good. But then he appoints a worm to eat the plant. Well, that's bad. And then he appoints that wind to suddenly blow. All these circumstances. And guess what? I'm sure this doesn't happen to you, but huh, his circumstances affected his mood. Go figure. And so each time he uses each of these things and he asks the question, and what does Jonah keep responding with? He says, oh, it's better for me to die than to live. It's revealing that he does not have that foundation of truth in God. Now, not all bad things that happen are punishments, right? Not all bad things that happen in us, but the bad things that happen should be the very thing that pushes us to engage with God, right? It should drive us to, to Jesus. But Jonah is stuck. He's stuck, and he's stubborn, right? He just keeps pounding the same anger, and he's just wishing to death over even these people to come to know the Lord. It's fascinating. Again, we see Jonah in the first chapter, 
just completely ignoring God and doing his own thing. The second chapter where he's is, is like, wow, thanks for helping me out, God, kind of prayer. The third chapter where he's just a reluctant kind of obedience, which is really not obedience. It's, I was teaching the children, I use this definition for obedience. Obedience is doing what you're told when you're told to do it with the right heart attitude. Well, we really don't have the right heart attitude here. So Jonah is probably just, in, in a sense, possibly complying. So he's then at the end talking back to God in ignoring him, arguing with him, or in just not engaging with him. It's amazing. But how does God respond? He invites Jonah into the conversation. He's asking Jonah questions. He's like, okay, you're angry. Well, let's talk about it. Let's wrestle through it. Let's, let's dig in and, and push back on this. Let's respond. Talk to me. But Jonah's silent. It reminds me of going back into Genesis chapter 4 of a different story where God does almost the same thing with someone, and his response is very Jonah-like. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we see the first two children of the first people, Cain and Abel. And let me read to you the story of Cain and Abel so that you see how God engages again with someone. Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of his fruits to the, of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Dramatic pause. Because we see again, what's Cain going to do? The next sentence. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. No engagement. Cain never responded to God offering to have a conversation, to have that dialogue, to have that interaction, and any kind of engagement. He just ignores and goes and continues to let that anger turn into hatred. It's turned into murder. But there are those examples in the Bible where we see this clear and good way that people have engaged with God, even if they were angry, even if they were distraught, where do we see some of these? Well, in Job, if you know the man Job, he's the one in the story in the Bible where his story is all about suffering. And he doesn't understand why he is suffering. So this is what Job says in chapter 7. If I have sinned, he's talking to the Lord, what have I done to you? You who see everything that we do, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? He's asking God questions. Abraham, Genesis 18. He sees the Lord, and now the Lord is ready to, is taking the next step where these, these two cities is about to destroy, a little bit opposite of what the Jonah story is about. And Abraham comes up to him and says this. He, still, he stood before the Lord, and then he drew near to the Lord. So he even got closer. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. 
And in that next couple lines, he keeps going, what if there's 40 or 30, 20? What if there's only 10 in these cities? Would you destroy them? He engages with God. Moses asks questions of the Lord. He says, why have you dealt with me ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me? And then we have David who says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And in Psalm 88, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? These people are engaging with God, even in the midst of anger or distress or sadness. They are engaging with God, asking the questions. And we see time and time again God asking the questions back. Jonah, though, has no questions. There is no indication that he asks God for anything, for help to understand why does he like these Ninevites so much, or help to change his heart towards them, or just questioning God at all. He's simply just stuck in that anger, unwilling to engage. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry over this plant? Should I not have pity on Nineveh? Again and again, God is willing to engage. God is asking him questions. How do we see that? God engaging with us. Are you listening to the Spirit who is engaging with you? Do you hear the, the words both from Him and His Word as well as from your fellow believers who might be asking you probing, concerned questions? Are you one who is asking good questions of others to help them? Uncomfortable engagements. And finally, we come to the uncomfortable ending. Once again, we're here at the end of an uncomfortable book, and it does not have a happily ever after. There's really actually no ending, right? There's no resolution. What does Jonah say back to God? What does he do? It's silent. Now, just like that other part made me think about the Old Testament, this part made me think about the New Testament and Jesus' way of presenting stories. There was a time when Jesus was confronted with his kind of Jonas of the day, which were like the Pharisees. And in that moment of this particular story in Luke 15, they were coming to him and saying, oh, the tax collectors and the sinners are all drawing near to him. They oh, this man receives these sinners and eats with them. So they were upset with Jesus. And Jesus tells them three stories about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, or the prodigal son, or the story of two sons. Now that story quickly goes, basically the, the man had two sons. The younger son basically tells his father to his face, he doesn't want him, he wants his money, he'd ra rather you be dead and I take your money. He runs off with the money, he spends it, he, he finds himself in a horrible situation and comes back, and when he comes back, the father accepts him lavishly, shows amazing grace and love and forgiveness to him. And right there could have been the ending of the story. They lived happily ever after. But there's this other guy, right? <laughs> we have the older son. And this is where I want to pick up because this is where we see an, an uncomfortable ending. A servant came out to the brother. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back and he's safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might even celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And so he said, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the brother says, We don't know. (laughs) Jesus leaves it right there at the end. We don't know what the brother is going to do. Does he go in and celebrate? Is he wowed by his father's amazing grace for his brother? Does he get the sense of this is what it's all about? Or does he stand on the hillside like Jonah and just sulk in kind of a self-pity, almost enjoying and feeling justified in his anger? Jesus doesn't answer the question because he's telling it directly to those Pharisees, the older brothers, and leaving it in their minds as to what are you going to do? Just like the end of Jonah, the author of Jonah is asking us, what are we going to do? He leaves it uncomfortable. So how about you? The uncomfortable emotion. Do you get angry enough? Do you get angry for the right reasons and handle it in the right way? Are you using your passion for the kingdom to make what is wrong right? But while you're doing that, are you repenting of those idols of your heart that cause you to get angry for the wrong reasons? Uncomfortable emotion. Uncomfortable engagement. Are you engaging with God deeply? Are you in prayer with him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? passionately and authentically? Can you even be angry at God but let him ask you those questions? Are you listening and engaging with those questions? Uncomfortable engagement. And finally, uncomfortable ending. Maybe you're here today and you're in some kind of uncomfortable ending. Maybe it's the end of a job or a phase of life or a relationship has ended in some way. And on one hand, maybe God is asking you to go. Maybe there's more resolution to happen. Maybe there's something to be done. Are you avoiding that and running the other way? Or is it to the point where you have done things and now you're in this situation where you're like, I have to let it go and trust God with that. It's uncomfortable. But even this uncomfortable ending in Jonah is not the ending. It's not the end. It's just a pause. It's kind of like, you know, a sequel that comes out 30 years after the original and is such a big hit, apparently. (laughs) Same idea. Jesus is coming, right? Where Jonah failed, Jesus succeeds. As Tim Keller says again, Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast into the storm so we could be brought in. Jesus willingly and uncomfortably sought out his enemies. He willingly and uncomfortably jumped into death, sacrificing himself. He willingly and uncomfortably brought us into his family. He willingly but uncomfortably even empowered us with his spirit so that we can go and do the same. The final echo of Jonah can be found in Matthew 28, where God told Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jesus then says to his disciples, go, make disciples of all nations. Go. That command is to us and to our hearts to go, 
to deal with what's going on and engaging with God in our own hearts, and then to the people in our lives, and then further and further outward. Will it be uncomfortable? Yes. People are uncomfortable, and even God can be uncomfortable. But Jesus went through the most uncomfortable situation, the death of the cross, to help us endure those slight discomforts in following him. Following Jesus is uncomfortable, but he empowers us through his spirit to have passion, even that godly anger, to really engage with him honestly and share in the real ending of the story, which is Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, you are alive. And Lord, there are many things that can bring us discomfort. It is uncomfortable to read your word sometimes. It is uncomfortable to think through how people have or have not engaged with you. It's uncomfortable to engage with you, Father. Yet we are so grateful that you engaged with us, that you stepped into our world, that you made that amazing, uncomfortable step, not only to say that you love us so much, just as God the Father is called a God of of compassion and of mercy, slow to anger and full of, of love, that hesed love, that love that never ends. But you, Jesus, showed us what that looked like here on earth. And then you brought us into your kingdom so that we can also go forth loving others. Lord, I pray you will help us to engage with you more deeply. I pray that you will empower us to love others more deeply, that you will help us when we are angry to be quick to repent and to follow what it looks like to to bring out the, the rights from the wrongs, to bring out the change that we can be empowered to do. Lord, all of these things make us uncomfortable, but I pray in the name of Jesus that you will allow us to continue to walk by faith and repentance each day In the name of Jesus, amen. Find out more about who we are and how you can plug in at covenantdoylestown.org.